so he says. And there she says, and that's all we worry about. Oops. I dropped test equipment on the ground. I'll hide it behind the fake soda. And things come out of me now, and I have to have tissue paper at hand as well. Okay, here we are, September the 22nd, 2019, lecture discussion number 76 on the book of Joel. And I'm going to start out by reading a letter from Susan from Bakersfield, which she's written me a couple of times, and I've been unable to get through my mail. And again, you folks that are sending me all this mail, it's, it's amazing, and I don't even know what to say. And Susan's letter was beautiful, and, and, uh, and she wrote again. She wrote... Uh, Pastor Chronister, we sang a new song in church today. See attached lyrics. Now, why would you suppose that she would send me the lyrics to a song? What would possibly be her motivation? I, I, I should read her motivation first before I read the lyrics. Try to get the order in. She writes, guess what part of the song made me think about your pounding in until you get it lecture system? Sincerely, Susan from Bakersfield, California. Here's how it goes. The new song. Probably won't make it into a single church in this city besides that. No, I'm kidding. God, the uncreated one, the author of salvation, who wrote the laws of space and time and fashioned worlds to his design, the one whom angels host revere, hung the stars like chandeliers, numbered every grain of sand, knows the heart of every man. He is king forever. He is king forever. He is king forever. It goes on. I don't have time to read it all. There's a, there is a, uh, an issue with Judas in it, I think. Let me see if I can find it. Yes, we have to fix that particular verse. But other than that, that it is fantastic. I mean, even with that, it is fantastic. I don't expect people to understand Judas and the contemporary church. It's too difficult for them. That's a, that's a conversation for another day. Okay, as is often the case, I have an intimidating pile of debris to, to glean through at home. Uh, it's a constant attribute of my methodology, as you might have known. My desk, I now have got gravitated to a table, um, and I have a big table, and it is just strewn with papers and research materials, all of which I have read. Uh, which is good, none of which is organized, and that's not so good. And I read them again and again and again because I'm not sure I read them before because they're spread all over the place. And Lori fortunately loves clutter, so it's working out great. Uh, some of you might think that's not true, and you would be right. Okay, so today I'm going to attempt to reduce the amplitude of the uh, hindmost pile because, as you know, I have many other previous mounds, of, um, other piles that I have never gotten back to. They await attention, and they're likely going to maintain their undisturbed condition. They're in boxes pretty much now, and eventually they just wither from inattention, which is my plan. Disintegration by means of neglect, second law of thermodynamics, and entropy, and all of that. That's how I'm handling my inability to keep up with myself. But with this latest pile that I have produced in the last few weeks or months or so, I'm not even sure where to begin shoveling. 
it has gotten out of control. And that causes the appearance of discontinuity, uh, something I attempted to dispel last week if you were here. And I would say quite successfully, but that's my definition of success, isn't it? And that, of course, gave me renewed confidence to repeat the format again this week. In other words, here we go again, just like last week, same as every Sunday. So let's start at memory, will, and existence. Notice that I have put them together this week. Typically, I do not. I'm putting them together this week uh, for reasons that I hope become clear in a minute. This is the discussion as of whenever we're in memory, will, and existence, what we are answering, the question we are answering is, why does Jesus Christ seem to hide himself? He hid himself in humility. The Ark of the Covenant or the testimony is covered with uh, different skins to keep it from being seen. It's put in the Holy of Holies where it's also unable to be seen by anyone but the high priest. So whenever you talk about memory, will, and existence, you're asking this question, why does Jesus Christ seem to hide himself? He is, after all, the one who is the creator of all life, biological life. Notice how I said that. What's the alternative to biological life? Non-biological life. What is non-biological life? That would be the angelic host. But he is the creator of life, and we're specifically, we're the biological side of that. Oh, there's two kinds of life. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. I would introduce Schrodinger's cat, but I save that for a few more pages. But he's the creator of the life that we read of in Genesis 1-3. He is that light of life, John 8-12. He even says he's that light of life. He's the light that causes life. So that leads us to the next obvious question in the, in the, in the strata here. Is a photon a particle? Or is it an electromagnetic, electromagnetic energy? Photons have duality. Now we bring up Schrodinger's cat. And as I said before, when I've covered this subject, I'm never, I'm absolutely certain that Erwin Schrodinger had no idea the implications spiritually, theologically, of his cat thought experiment. Photons have duality in that they are described as being the fundamental particle of light and they're also a wave vector. In other words, they have particle quality and they have wave quality at the same time. And it, and it is observation that makes the determination as to whether or not they are a particle or a wave form. The physicist community concluded uh, quite a while back that an individual photon doesn't have any mass. But yet they call it a particle. And not only does it lack mass, but it has two possible polarization states. Back to Schrodinger. Myocardial cells have two possible states. They have a polarized state and a depolarized state. But I'm getting off the subject or digressing, or I'm not. You have to decide today. 
Are electrons a particle? We've been taught in school, I was taught in school, that electrons are particles. They even put them in tubes and called them marbles to show how they might move through uh, a conductive uh, strata or conductive substrate. Now, we're not so sure that they're particles. Electrons, as with photons, exhibit properties of both particle and waves, as do all elementary particles. They all do that. How much duality is in this creation is ultimately where we're headed here, and that's the question that uh, I think the church fails to recognize, and I would like to correct it. In all of the churches, I got a letter, or not a letter, I got a phone call from somebody that told me that uh, there's, uh, there's a gentleman on the Internet who is... Uh, how do I put this politely? It doesn't bother me. Don't think it does. In fact, actually, it's a high form of praise for me. But he is using material that I recognize. How's that? That's cool. Uh, for everybody but him. In the sense that he, if I make him exactly like me, that's a detriment to his entire life, his marriage. Uh, never mind. But uh, his church uh, attendance, for sure. Where am I now? Electrons, are they, in fact, particles or not? Electrons are involved in electromagnetic fields. Every electron that is in motion relative to an observational frame will generate a magnetic field. In other words, we tell if they're in motion by someone uh, or something observing them. And as they move, they'll create a magnetic field. And that is why God hides. Does that make sense at all? Good. It wasn't supposed to. Or is thought to hide. Unseen would be the more precise term. This is why this is why God is unseen. Let me ask some more questions in this particular vein. What is thought? Define thought. How does thought work? How does thought become thought? When does thought become thought? What is the process of thinking? I don't expect any 16-year-old boy to answer any of those questions. That's sort of a joke. Thanks for one laugh. Two doesn't count because it was not sold well. Yeah. You know, we have to go to class and learn how to act as if I'm funny. But th I want you to think about thought. How's that? How fast is thought? What is it again? How does thought become thought? What's the means? Is thought a particle or a wave? Is thought physical or is it non-physical? And we've, again, we've had this subject before. This is interferometry. It's substance dualism. It's Schrodinger's cat. And hopefully by the addition of myochondrial polarization, the discussion is going to advance because that's what's got me animated, as you might expect because I'm affected by this. This myocardial system, this structure inside the ventricles is all myocardium. That, that polarizes and depolarizes, and that fascinates me because that's an electrical function. And I'm hoping to advance what it is that's going on in us that is testifying of certain fundamental scriptural truth. It has become common for the most useless and destructive segment of our society, you will know that as Hollywood and the media, for those people to posit, to actually present as fact that mankind is going to defeat time in the not-too-distant future. 
and that mankind also will have the ability to replicate consciousness, which is why I ask you, what is a thought? In other words, they are presenting constantly now. I think it's starting to become ridiculously obvious what their intent is, but we'll talk about that in a minute. They present that it is possible to extract consciousness, duplicate that consciousness, and then reinstall the reproduction of the consciousness into a mechanical device. That is rampant today. In other words, in other other words, They are presenting the capturing of all memory of a living soul and the transfer of that memory into a device. Now, why do they focus on the memory? That's why I added memory to will and existence. They're focused on the memory. They're going to go and essentially kidnap the memory. Is the memory the person? You've heard me talk about this quite a few times. Are you the sum of your memories? Is that your personhood? Or is it the will? Which of these two is you? The memory or the will? What is the difference between memory and will? You exercise your will. What is is memory with relationship to the will? Obviously, I'm making the point really quickly that the will is you. The decision element is you. The will is the person. Existence and will are bonded. You've heard me make that point many, many times. It's inseparability. And I've often said, just as as much as I can, my self-awareness, which is considered to be qualia in the philosophical realm, my personhood is unaffected by my fading memory. I have fading memory now. It will be more faded in a few minutes than it is now. It's just the nature of getting to my age. I am unaffected by my fading memory in the sense that my personhood is unaffected. My will is unaffected. I still have will. The fact that I can't remember who I don't like is not a big factor. I try to remember who I do like. And how do I tell you if I like you? That's right, how you pretend to like me. It's all very good. That's why the person whose name I can't remember who may or may not be related to me, is my favorite niece because she pretends the best. And it's not even close. It's amazing how good she is. But again, if I did not know her name, and now she's not sure if I do know her name, but if I did not know her name, wouldn't none, it would nonetheless leave my personhood unchanged. My memory is not me. I have lots of memories. You do too. I have a storehouse of them. My ability to uh, to access them has been affected and will become increasingly affected. But again, that will not change my self-awareness, my personhood. Confiscation of memory does not accomplish transferring of existence. So why do they say it does? Why after show, after show, after show... Do the idiots of Hollywood, I'm sorry, I'm insulting the idiots of Hollywood. I don't mean to call them idiots over and over and over again. Though they are, of course, idiots. Why do these idiots insist on presenting this ridiculous premise? Certainly they have run into somebody who has called them idiots. As you get older, of course, what happens to you? 
you get less and less tolerant. <laughs> but why do they insist on saying that, uh, m- that memory has some value with regard to existence and will? When in fact it does not. And it is obvious it does not. So to repeat somewhat here. Are existence and will a particle? Or are they the breath of life that can only return to the God who gave it? Genesis 7.22. Ecclesiastes 12.7. And perhaps you can infer the destructive intention of those who propose otherwise to Genesis 7.22 and Ecclesiastes 12.7. Does God want a particle to return to him as the, breath of his, as the breath of life? He is the breath of life. It is his breath. He wants it back. Is it particle? Clearly it is not. Genesis 1.20, Genesis 1.21, Genesis 1.24, Genesis 1.30, Genesis 2.7, Genesis 7.22, Ecclesiastes 12.7. Why are they attacking these particular verses over and over and over relentlessly in our media today? We used to have the academics pretty much isolated against the media in the sense that the media was still very religious and had an understanding of the deity that is clearly present, even though we assume it is unseen. Make no mistake, evolutionary atheism has a purpose. They're attacking Ecclesiastes 12.7 on purpose. They know that they bring despair and hopelessness and purposelessness to the impressionable minds of the young. They're doing it by design. They are destroying the youth of this country every single movie and TV show that they can. It is what they do. It isn't by accident. It is by intent. They know full well what will happen if they can convince young people that there is no spirit of life that returns to him who gave it. You tear that principle apart and you end up with a chaotic society. Why do they want that? Obviously, God seeming to be unseen is connected to his gift of the breath of the spirit of life and therefore existence and will. That is why he appears to be unseen. And notice how I'm saying that he's not unseen in, in every sense. The entire creation testifies of him. You and I are created things. We have hearts, little tiny hearts. So it's. Turns out, little itty-bitty hearts, they're not very big. But we all have one, and we have a brain. Those are physical devices, and I'm going to make the case over the few weeks here that the heart and the brain, extraordinary testimonies of who God is and how he thinks. But obviously, God seeming to be unseen is connected to the breath of the spirit of life, Will and existence. I can't can't repeat that enough. And to all that is a living being, a living soul, 
So the question becomes, how is his seeming to be not seen, invisible? He's the invisible God made visible. Christ is the visible of the invisible, the triune Godhead here. Three distinct persons, yet one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, which is part of the lecture here in a minute. How is it that he is, how is it that his unseen or in, invisibility apparent seeming invisibility is connected to existence and will. You need to know how to answer that. How many of you, don't raise your hands here, how many of you cannot answer why it is that his seeming to be invisible is connected to our will and our existence? I would suspect that a few of you aren't able to answer that, but if you just start thinking about the the three components, uh, the invisibility, the will, and the existence, you'll begin to figure it out very quickly before the lecture is over. And then you can tell the person next to you that you knew it all along and see how they respond. And again, just being aggressive works a lot in this particular field. Notice I'm taking my glasses on and off a lot now. Have you noticed that? My eyesight is going so fast. I used to say that you could tell if the pastor was attractive by all the attractive uh, people in the front two rows. I can't tell who's who anymore. I can't see a single one of you. It's really getting bizarre. And I I have glasses that help me see the crossword puzzles with a magnifying glass now. That's how fast this is occurring. Equally obvious, returning to the lecture, is the fact of the inviolability of time. Uh, Specifically, entering the past from the future. So time passed from the future. That is impossible. It is inviolable. But here comes Hollywood and here comes the media. They present this as if it is a it is a confirmed fact. Besides the necessity to be able to observe all of time, which is the singular purview of the one who conceived the nature of time and instituted time, the creator of time, if you will. There's also the Newtonian laws of motion. So in other words, time cannot be violated. Time past cannot be violated by time present or time future because you have to be able to observe it at all simultaneously. And you also are going up against the laws of motion, which then are used to validate the laws of conservation of energy and conservation of momentum. The laws of motion, Newton's laws, led to the laws of conservation of energy and conservation of momentum. Conservation or the law of conservation of momentum states that in an isolated system, the total momentum is constant. Notice the emphasis on isolated. The law of conservation of energy, which is, again, the natural logical extension of the laws of conservation of momentum. This won't mean anything to you today. I know that. Uh, Newton's laws of motion is the foundation. On top of that comes the laws of conservation of momentum and the laws of conservation, the law of conservation of energy. Conservation of energy establishes that the total energy of an isolated system remains constant. Can't change it. The results 
that, that, that results in the inviolable fact or the inviolable truth that energy cannot be created or destroyed. Energy can affect transformation. It can affect conversion effect, but cannot be created or destroyed in an isolated system. The key word there is isolated. Do we, in fact, have an isolated system? Is there a relationship between God's invisibility and what physicists think is an isolated system? The point is, yea, finally a point, page six. The laws of physics are considered to be immutable over time. Let me repeat that. The laws of physics are immutable over time. Immutable means unchanging. Immutability is a singular characteristic of who. Who is the only one that says he's immutable? So we're beginning to see that time and the laws of physics testify of who. Can you change time is the question. Or is time immutable? And immutability is the characteristic, the singular characteristic of God. God says, he does not change over time, for I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3, 6, it would be a good idea to name your son Malachi. So he would know that. The laws of physics are ubiquitous. That means they are everywhere in the universe at the same time. Time again requires an observational reference point, frame of reference. God is omnipresent. Physics are omnipresent. The laws of physics are testifying of omnipresence. The laws of physics testify of Jesus Christ. Time testifies of Jesus Christ. Again, these laws are the same throughout the universe. That's extraordinary. Because of what I've just told you, Traveling back into a time that has passed is impossible, not be done because of all of these constraints that are in its way. The creator of all things has the ability, because he is the only absolute observer of all things, he has therefore the capacity to see all of time on a table, if you wish to think of it that way, at the same time. And that is the attribute necessary in order to transcend time. And he alone can bring energy into an isolated system. And if he's doing that, then it's not isolated unless he's what? Doing it invisibly. Seemingly invisibly. It's not. But it seems to us that it is because we're what? Clueless. That's right. Even though he says it all testifies of me. So this isn't an isolated system. And all those who attempt to assign the qualities of God to mankind, and which, what I mean by that is they say that mankind is going to transcend time. If mankind does, in fact, transcend time, how much chaos will occur with that? If they say mankind will get the ability to overcome the ubiquity of the laws of physics, that's a pretty powerful uh, capability. 
But they, they say it over and over and over again. And the church just stands there while these shows beat our children to pieces. When, they, when the church possesses the ability and the truth to destroy this nonsense. This wreaks untold, I, albeit subtle damage to the churches as well. But it's tearing the schools and the governments and the societies apart. And I know people say to me all the time, it's just a, a, a book, uh, Coach. It's just a movie. It's fantasy. It's escapism. Um, but all you have to really do is read Isaac Asimov's philosophy, Gene Roddenberry's philosophy. Their whole goal of their books and their movies and their television show was to destroy the deity of Christ, the, uh, the truths of Scripture. They were atheists. The Huxleys, all of them, they've revealed their intention, and that is to promote atheistic philosophies. Atheistic, atheistic philosophies start out by saying that no one exists and no one has will. You, they'll give you memory, but then they'll tell you they can steal your memory and put it into a machine. But they'll tell you you have no free will. That's, a, that's fundamental in atheism. There is no hope, there's no purpose, there's no meaning. All you got is the next 15 minutes. I'm watching this climate debate, right? You can't help it. We have these children running around, children running around the, the nation screaming that they're all going to die. Um, why would they be afraid of death would be the obvious question. Why are you afraid of death? Because you believe it is, you have no existence. You believe you have no will. That's why you fear death so much. And you think there's no accountability. And the people that are teaching you this are fervent. They're convinced that there is no accountability. The most surprised uh, of all beings in front of the throne of Christ, which might come as quickly as September. We're hoping for that. Oh, I have to say something. I got a, a nice letter. Why did I say that we were at 59.86 instead of 59.76? Everybody wanted to know because I said that we have a plus or minus 10. And I, of course, chose the 10 because I want to get it as close as possible to getting out of here. That's my whole, whole hope. But, uh, yeah, we don't know. We cannot lay it down as to anything exact. We'll have a... a Approximation, and I just chose the approximation that best fits my retirement scheme, which is September. We're out of here. I know why September, because September 29th is Rosh Hashanah, and God, of course, because He loves trumpet players above all musicians. Banjo players are pretty close, but trumpets way up here. Um, it's because he will make a move with regard to the abduction of the bride, in my view, on the feast day of trumpets. So every time one comes along, I'm watching. And if I happen to see Ezekiel 38 Confederacy War in the Middle East simultaneously with a feast day of trumpets, then I'm a pretty happy person. Again, I can't say it enough. Our lives will change if... In a way, we can't even begin to imagine if that confederacy moves on Israel in our lifetimes. Okay. Where am I?
I'm in a church. I've just given you a proof that the in in this material as to the impossibility that time past can not be entered by men. In other words, I'm sorry, I said that badly, didn't I? There's, it's impossible that men can enter time past. So you might not have found it in there. I might not have made it so obvious, but that's part of my, again, methodology, my system. I don't want to make it obvious. I want you to work it through yourself because that's what makes you powerful. It isn't me. I can't. You have to be able to answer these questions yourselves. And we're going to be confronted with it as a country, as a nation, as a church in a way that's ridiculous as it continues to go. The darkness is sweeping. I am in Ecclesiastes 12, actually, for those of you keeping score at home. Uh, The meaning of the silver cord that is loosened and that is returned to the one who gave it. If all you can do to your sons and daughters, your children, is tell them, listen, you have a silver cord and one day it will be loosened and you and it will return to the one who gave it to you and you will stand in front of him. By you, your personhood, your will, your existence will stand in front of him. I don't know about your memory, I I think your memory will be unbelievably fantastic. But that silver cord is your existence, your will, that's your spirit, your soul. We'll deal with that as we go here today. And whenever you have a discussion on Ecclesiastes 12, eventually you arrive at the mind and the brain, the soul and the body. Oh, wait, I have the mind and the brain and the soul and the body. What is that? Yes, we're back into Schrodinger's duality. Why is there this duality everywhere in the Bible? It's everywhere in creation. There's this uh, substance dualism. And I, uh, into this arena... Of the soul and the body, the will, the consciousness, the consciousness and the machine. Choose whatever you wish. The breath of the spirit and the dust is the one that is described in Ecclesiastes. He differentiates of the breath of the spirit of life and the dust. One is the body, one, the other is your personhood, your existence. You! You are never the dust. You are always the spirit in scripture. And into this arena, I'm adding the heart for obvious reasons. But actually, mostly because Jesus Christ himself, the living God, made manifest in the flesh, introduces the heart into the dialogue, which is a fortuitous development, frankly. Creator God provides commentary, and perhaps we should note what he says about it, especially me. Maybe Jesus Christ, the creator of the heart, the designer of it, the one who put it in us, if you wish to think of it that way, through a transducianism process, maybe he can add uh, elucidational concepts to it. Just maybe he is valuable to consult. So back at lecture number 74, September 8, I brought up some of these statements. Let's read one of them in its entirety, or not quite in its entirety. We don't have time. Uh, Matthew 15. I would have got there eventually. I might have even said Matthew 15. But you're wise to keep ahead of me, huh? Matthew 15, 1 through 3. That's where we'll start. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? 
for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So never buy food from somebody that does not wash their hands before they give you a McDonald's sandwich. Never. It's right here in the Bible. Christ answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Oh, isn't that interesting? Here is where Christ starts destroying the traditions of man, specifically the Pharisees, who are the church of its time. So he's going to take on the traditions of the church. How interesting to me. We're going to skip down to seven here. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesize about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths, with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. It's not that which goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that this defiles a man. Then his disciples came to him. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? Does God know that he offended the religious church people? I think he might have known that since he's omniscient when they heard this saying. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter, now you know where I get that from, right? Then Peter answered and said to him, please explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? That's a rhetorical question. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So he identified the leaders of the church as what? Insidious. Notice first the traditions of man having authorities over the commandments of God. Beware the churches that that put the traditions over the commandments. How many are there? Oh, everyone. We have traditions that are holy. We have a holy dry erase board. We have a holy dry erase marker. He who possesses the holy dry erase marker gets to decide what goes on the holy dry erase board. It's amazing. We have a holy banjo. You have to stand to be dismissed. I mean, these are traditions. There are some traditions in most churches, however, that have authority. The Bible is subordinated to it. They have individuals in their churches who what they say has authority over Scripture. They will set aside the Bible and listen to some guy yell out stuff. And that person will be given authority over the Bible. That is an anathema. He calls that evil. We have the largest church in the world gives their leader 
authority over the Bible. So notice that the traditions of men having authority over the commandments of God is rebuked, but nonetheless it is something that is overwhelming within the church of our time. Bill the cow before he left for Kentucky. (coughs) So Kentucky be alert. Know that he's down there and the trouble is coming. Not necessarily because of Bill the cow, but because of Crazy Becky. A combination of both. Kind of a Bonnie and Clyde motif here. So Kentucky needs to know where they are at all times. But uh, Bill the Cow related a conversation with a church leader. Uh, I won't give you the denomination. You'll figure it out. Who concluded essentially that he would rather believe what he, what he believes even if it is exposed as a lie. In other words, he would take the tradition rather than submit to the truth of Scripture, even if it was proven to him. He said it, I think, kind of like this. I hope I get it right. He said, if the lie, if what I believe is a lie and it's proven to be a lie, a lie, I will still believe it. It's so precious to me. And I think that is absolutely is the attitude of many, many churches. And it is, again, evil, wickedness. And I submit this man represented the contemporary church today as well as the political establishment of this country. I can see this fundamental in the political elements political areas people will believe they will choose their political side no matter how wrong it might be and even if it is proven to be wrong it won't matter they'll still cling to the wrong they would rather be wrong than be excluded that is very similar to how the church functions if not identically and that of course destroys a country but for today notice that he says their heart is far from me their heart what's he mean by that and and don't be so sure that you've got that figured out the chances you've got it figured out i think are not good because the church hasn't taught you so you must first now dissect from what the church has given you and now figure out what did god mean when he says the heart keep in mind that what he's the one that designed it What's he mean? Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. What are those things that come out of your mouth that originate in the heart? For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. I read it a couple of weeks ago. The heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Rhetorical question. No one can know it. And then he answers it. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. He searches the heart. Revelation. That's Revelation 2.23 and that's Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. They are the same. When you see him say to the church of Thyatira that I am the one, the only one who can search the mind and the heart. Here he says he tests the mind and searches the heart. So what do we got? The creator, the designer of the entirety of the human body. Genesis 2, 7 says as clear as he can, not stuttering, that the heart is the origin of evil thoughts. Think that through. Thank you. Yeah, but you're faster than the favorite, so my gosh, you just really. Of course, it's not fair. She's been asleep 20 minutes. I mean, it's just. So is the rest. 
<laughs> That's not a bad rejoinder, is it? Okay. <laughs> the heart is deceitful. The heart lies. Everybody that tells me, oh, I have such a heart for whatever the particular event might be. I have such a heart for animals. I have such a heart for the poor. I have such a heart for music. The heart, Christ says, is deceitful. It lies. The heart is wicked. And then he says, only I can know the heart. Again, that's a rhetorical question. No one but I, the Lord, can know the heart. I am he who searches the minds and the heart. He tests the minds. What does he mean? The guy that made it. How simple of a statement is that? Or how complicated of a statement is that? I think it gets more complicated than we can ever even begin to assess. And I know everyone was hoping for that. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, we have more information, Christ says. They're pure in heart. How are they pure? Pure. Are they simultaneously pure and evil? Do you know Christians that have wicked hearts but pure hearts? Is that Schrodinger's? Never mind. It's two states of... Uh, do you have a wickedness in you and yet at the same time have a purity in you? Those of you who are saved, which is everybody, whether you like it or not. Some people don't like being saved. They love their tradition that they can give up their salvation. They don't care how wrong they are. They don't care how obvious it is that they're wrong. They love it so much that they'll never give it up. They'll stand before Christ and, and scream at him, I can lose my salvation. Doesn't matter. It's their tradition. And they love their tradition. I'm digressing again, aren't I? Matthew 5:28 But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 22:37 You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. There we have heart, soul and mind. So I should put that up here because that's amazing. Heart Soul, mind. What's the first obvious question that comes flying out? What's the difference between the heart and the mind? And what's the difference between the heart, the soul, and the mind? What's the the difference between the mind, the soul, and the heart? How does that work? He said it. Therefore, we know it's true. Heart, soul, mind. Now, some people will disagree. I'll get to uh, Deuteronomy in a minute. Matthew 24:48 But if that evil servant says in his heart Mark 8:17 Do you not yet perceive nor understand rhetorical question no is your heart still hardened That's obviously Exodus 7 chapter 7 through chapter 14 the Pharaoh hardened his own heart and the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart How does the Lord harden a hardened heart How much hardening we got going on here Luke 6.45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. John 14.27, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 16.6, because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. What would we have said? What would I have said? Because he's not saying it. 
I would have said, my mind. Fear has come into my mind. Sorrow has come into my mind. He's not saying that. He's saying, heart. Does, does he know? John 16:22 Therefore you now have sorrow but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. So let's make a quick list without writing it all down cuz list makers got a list and I don't have time. This is what Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, the creator, the triune Godhead says this. All three persons says this of the heart. It can be far away. From the Creator. The heart can be revealed through the mouth. So the heart can, can, can cause words. The heart can think evil thoughts. The heart lies. The heart is wicked. It's deceitful. Only God can know the heart. The heart lusts. The heart loves. The heart says evil things. The heart can be hardened. It can store treasure, either evil or good. It can become filled with sorrow. It can rejoice. It can be afraid. It can be troubled. So repeating the question, what does Christ mean by this? If you have concluded that it is all allegorical or it's metaphorical or if it's just a symbol, well, I won't disagree that it's a symbol. The heart is a symbol, all right. But he's saying he's assigning physical or non-physical traits to the heart. He's assigning non-physical characteristics. Why is he doing that? Isn't the human heart only, isn't it merely an electrical device? Because it is an electrical device. Isn't that all it is? Well, no, it's not. Turns out, not even close. I see the fingers. Does Jesus Christ, omniscient God, know that the heart is an electrified blood distribution system? Yes, he knows. He's the electrical engineer. He's the one that thought it into existence. More repeating, he is the omniscient designer creator. He knows, duh. He knows, duh. Obviously, he means what he says. He knows all what he says. The human heart, the heart of a living being, is far more than anyone has ever conceived. So how do we figure this out? The way we do it is the way we always do it. We ask more questions. Eventually, the subject is going to revolve and resolve with the heart, soul, mind of Matthew 22, 37, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one Lord, I'm sorry, let me do it better. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might or strength, it says. Luke 10, 27, Matthew 23, 37, and Mark 12, 30. All have mind in there. They all have heart, mind, soul. They don't have strength or might. One might have might. Yeah, Mark 12, 30 has strength. This is the first commandment so identified by Jesus Christ. Every Jew, when he said this to them, Deuteronomy 6.4, knew Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the Shema. And every Orthodox Jew today knows the Shema. What is interesting to me is that while the Greek has separate words for heart and mind, guess who doesn't have separate words for heart and mind? The Hebrews. They have one word, Levah. 
L-E-V-A-V. It's interchangeable. It means both heart and mind. Oh, no, we're back to Schrodinger's cat. Thus, the Hebrew would combine heart with mind at Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the same word for them. That's why you see heart and mind. Essentially, love God with your understanding and mind is what the Hebrews would interpret that to mean. Are they right? I have all this other evidence in the New Testament. Was Christ interchanging heart and mind? Okay, have to answer that, don't we? So, something is hidden here in the physical heart. The physical heart is clearly a symbol, a profound truth, as is the physical brain. So, what are the differences between the heart and the mind? Why are they searched by God when God searches the heart? What's he looking for? When he, Christ, searches the mind again, what's he searching for? I've answered that before. I said it was belief. It's certainly one part of it and maybe the greatest part. And I hope it is the greatest part. Does the physical heart, which possesses neurological structures and system, does it communicate with the brain? We know that it does. It has neurological cell structures and it communicates with the brain. What's the obvious question then? What else communicates with the brain besides the heart? Well, you can say nerves and different systems in the body. But what am I after? Somebody's yelled that out. What else? The mind, if the mind communicates with the brain and the cell structures are essentially identical, then does the mind communicate with the heart? In other words, the mind controls and interprets the activity of the brain, reads the incoming information. Does the mind also control the heart? We know that it does. It's called the sympathetic and parasympathetic, just as a first analysis, more so than that. But does the mind assess the information that the heart records and that the heart transmits? How much is the mind involved in the heart? It's completely intertwined with the brain. Is it completely intertwined with the heart? We know there is an afference and an efference. In other words, the, the, the heart has afference with respect to the brain. The heart sends controlling logical, neurological signals to the brain. And the brain has efference and, and sends information to the heart. Both are distribution devices, sending out extraordinary complex intelligence, the receivers and transmission, transmission systems. Does the mind have access to the cerebral neurological activity of the cardiac system? In other words, did I say that right? Does the mind, can it, can it get into the cardiac? Because we know it gets into the cerebral. The heart begins to beat. Do you know when? What comes first? The chicken, the egg, or the heart or the brain? The heart beats before the brain is formed. That's important, I think. Why is the heart so electrified? Why does the heart have four chambers? Why does the left atrial have an appendage? Why does Solomon give four examples of the soul leaving the body? Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7. There is an appendage in the left atrial. I didn't draw it. It's right here. It looks somewhere like that. So that's not to scale. I already have an attorney after me named Daggett, apparently. It's not to scale, but that appendage is what I have to worry about because as, as my heart begins to go into this oscillation, that appendage will fill up with blood, and that is where the clots form. So why is there appendage? It's on the left side. 
Why isn't it on the right side? Why is there a left side and a right side? Why is this SA node in the right atrium? It's right here. This is what initiates. I don't have these completely correct. Uh, this, is, this is the SA node. This is the AV node. The SA node is what initiates the electrical cardiac cycle. Why is it in the right atrium, the sinuatrial node? Why is the atrial ventricular node in the right? It's not quite in the right atrium, it's, but it's in the right side of the heart. Why are they both on the right side? How come one isn't on the left side? I could go over the electrical system because I have this bundle of hiss through here and I have the, the, the bundle down here and the, the electricity travels, comes out of this node. What happens to me, of course, is my signals are coming out of the pulmonary veins and that's what they ablated to stop those signals from interfering with everything and sending the heart into chaos. But why is it that it starts here and why does the circuit work the way it does? Why does the sinuatrial node initiate the electrical cardiac signal? It receives, the SA node receives information from the autonomic system. That's the brain. And again, we have these neural-like cells, these brain cells, if you wish. They're in the SA node, they're in the AV node, they're in the bundle of Hiss, and they're in the Purkinje fibers down here at the bottom. And this electrical signal activates all of these neurological specialized cells. Why are there four chambers? Why are there four pulmonary veins? Why is this, why is this automaticity in the heart? What is automaticity? It means that the heart can think. Just like the brain has automaticity, the heart has automaticity. It thinks. Did Christ know that when he made all these statements about the heart? Oh, I think he does. Did I have any idea how complicated this thing was on the 4th of June? No idea. Never gave it a second thought. Now I don't do anything but think about it. It is part of my burden now. And so what does that mean? That's right. I'm going to make it part of your burden too. That's exactly what I'm doing. Till you're sick of me. And that's all I got left. Firing my last few bullets. <laughs>